Hyperno Goethe, German-Irish Conversations. Join me, St. Pauli fan and former Dusseldorfer Kieran Murray, in conversation with my guests as we explore the connecting moments of German and Irish life. We delve into the many aspects of arts, language and life across cultures. What do musicians, dancers, artists and writers pick up from both cultures? And how are they inspired and enriched by the other? Hyperno Goethe. German-Irish Conversations is for all listeners who like to go and think beyond borders. This podcast is supported by the Goethe Institute Dublin. Hello and welcome. Dear Eve, August, guten Tag. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Gisela Hofter, Professor of German at the University of Limerick and the Director for the Centre for Irish-German Studies. You're very oh. welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So just tell me a little bit, Gisela, um, how long have you lived in Ireland? Well, I've lived in Limerick since early 1996. I lived a year in Belfast, 88 to 89. And the first time I came to Ireland on a holiday was in 1984. And Limerick, was it always your dream uh, when you were growing up in Cologne? Cologne, you grew up in Cologne, didn't you? Near Cologne, outside Cologne, on the wrong side of Cologne, but never mind. Oh, no, I have to mind that. What's the wrong side of Cologne? Is that <laughs> <laughs> The wrong side of Cologne is the east side because the Romans were on the left side. And um, everything that was on the other side of the Rhine was, of course, the barbarian side. And so I've grown up on the barbarian side of, ah, of okay. Cologne. So do you consider it, uh, it, it's not a mark of pride that your um, origin is barbarian rather than classical Roman? No, I think it's just the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, then. Yeah. So I was asking you, did you did you always dream of going to live in Limerick? No, <laughs> I think it's fair to say that it wasn't a dream. I I can't say I had a dream of living in Ireland. I I kind of did fall in love with Ireland when I came here for the first time in 1984. And that's why I went back in 1984. 88 to be an assistant teacher in Belfast at four schools but at the time I had actually applied to go to Cork and then I was offered Belfast and uh, okay fine with me and I was very happy I went there and I really enjoyed my time Um, and I was fairly fixated on Ireland I have to say for a long time I did my PhD on German travel literature about Ireland but then I got a position in New Zealand and I liked that so much that I thought heck I think I want to stay here. And this is when I got a permanent position in Limerick. So um, I I think it was actually a good time then to come here because it wasn't a kind of dream destination, but I've been very happy here. I think I've been very lucky. And take me back a little bit. So you took on a post um, as assistant teacher in 1989 in Belfast and you worked at four different schools. I take it the schools were a different mix of of unionist and nationalist backgrounds. They were. I think you could say two were Catholic and two were Protestant. And what was that like? Very interesting. Um, At the time, that was obviously before the Good Friday Agreement, there was still quite a lot going on in terms of sectarian problems. Not that that's all gone, unfortunately, but it was a different caliber. And I still remember being completely surprised how quickly one got used to seeing um, soldiers going around, how quickly you got used to soldiers kind of following you with a machine gun when you, particularly one of my schools was on the false road. 
St. Dominic's excellent school, by the way. Um, th that was, if you're the only person on the road and someone is following you with a machine gun, that's a little bit strange. Um, at the same time, it seemed to become very normal very quickly. That's, that was quite shocking. I really enjoyed my time in, in all schools, I have to say, and, and um, I'm still in contact with some from, from one school in particular. I think the, the teacher there became a lifelong friend. Unfortunately, she has died and her husband died, but I'm still in contact with her daughter and I consider her a friend. Okay. Um, when you decided to go to Belfast, did your friends and family think that it was a bit of a strange decision to go there um, with soldiers with machine guns on the streets? I think they knew I was fascinated by Ireland. So, and I, I really enjoyed traveling. I don't know why, but anyway, that was there from a early time, um, from a very early time. So I don't think they were too surprised. And I'm happy to say that I convinced a lot of people to come to Northern Ireland and that I was praised by some colleagues in, in schools of kind of saying that I do more than the Northern Ireland tourist board to bring people there. And there's so much Northern Ireland has to offer. It's such a great place. And um, when you lived there, was it was it an easy place to socialize for uh, a young German woman during the Troubles? Very easy. Um, first of all, you had an immediate network of all the other assistant teachers, Germans and French, because in, in three of my schools, there were French assistant teachers. So very quickly, we became friends and did a lot of things together. I was very lucky that I was only teaching Monday to Thursday. So I had Fridays off and very often I took off and traveled around and also visited friends um, who were uh, students in Galway or friends in Cork or um, just explored new places. So it was really quite quickly to get to know also other Irish people um, from, from both sides. Uh, sometimes it was a little bit scary that I, okay, I'm probably, I played very badly bassoon and I was in one of the school orchestras and I was really surprised when I heard someone saying Monday after a concert where I was in the very back for very good reason. And um, someone, oh, I heard you were playing in a concert yesterday. And I said, hmm? And I kind of, that was in a different school. And it just, it, news where you went, went around very quickly. And seemingly, um, I, I was somewhat surprised by that. Mm. So in, in, in some ways, it's a very small place. Did the nationalists ever ask you if you thought that Northern Ireland should be a part of United Ireland? Or did the unionists ever ask you if you thought that Northern Ireland should be a part of Britain? No, I think as an outsider, and I was clearly an outsider. I mean, clearly had a strong German accent, unfortunately. And um, you were always in a special position. And I remember someone, and I can't even tell you whether it was from the Protestant or the Catholic side, saying, um, well, you might, if you're walking around at night, and I did I, I'm very happily lyric theatre, I think I went to basically all the plays that were on, all the concerts, there, there was so much um, going on there it, in, in Belfast, there's a lot going on culturally. So they said, well, if you stopped at night and you're asked to say the ABC, make really sure that you check who's asking you because you have to say H or H, depending on which side is asking you. And I thought, I, I just have to say A, and they know that I'm not from here. So <laughs> yeah. it wasn't an issue. Yeah. Uh, H or H would have been ha, wouldn't it? Um, 
I, I remember back uh, during my first trips to Germany trying to buy some cigarettes and uh, it was HB, which was <laughs> yeah. the, which was ice cream for us. But it was uh, ha, ha, ha bay. Well, it took me a long time to learn ha bay. It's funny the things that you learn uh, um, quick Very enough when you, when you need something. Um, so you said that part of your early studies was looking at German travel books about Ireland. Um, were there many? Was it, was it Baydecker is the famous kind of um, German travel books. Did they write guides to Ireland? Did you, did you travel around Ireland with a uh, 1970s German Baydecker guide? No, I hitchhiked around and was um, very often um, almost told off for it and kind of, do you know how dangerous it is? Um, And I was interested in the early ones from 7085 onwards is the first one that was published um, by Kuttner, the first German travel description. There were a few before English ones that were translated into German. Um, but that was the first real German one. And then there was um, kind of a huge amount of travel descriptions coming out between 1828 and 1848, basically. And that was a time of, of Daniel O'Connell and Ireland be, was really popular. And I think there was probably the only time in, in the 19th century that, that Ireland was popular. But there were more books about Ireland in that time than in the rest of the century taken together. And who, who was writing these travel books? Who was coming here? It was quite a mixture. There were people like the the first one who really had a huge impact was um, first Pückler. Um, and he wrote a lovely book and I, I, I will list that under recommendations. Um, Briefe eines Verstorbenen, uh, Letters of a Dead Man. And his story is, is quite a funny one because he had a great interest in gardens and, and garden design. And that was a very costly hobby. And so he came to the conclusion after he spent a lot of money that, uh, particularly his wife's money, that um, he and his wife jointly seemed to have come to the conclusion that they would get divorced. He would travel to England Island to marry a rich heiress, and then they would live happily ever after, the three of them. Now, somehow this came out and there was no one in England or Ireland for that matter who was interested in that idea. But he wrote back to his now ex-wife um, his experiences and his impressions and was really taken by Ireland and he was really taken by Daniel O'Connell and um, the book was a great success and he was lucky because copyright had just been introduced so he actually made a lot of money with that book and could afford a few more gardens to plan, plant and, and design. And didn't need um, to get married to the heiress in the end. No he didn't, yeah. didn't need to yeah. and <laughs> no one wanted him anyway. <laughs> Yeah, well, was he was he a very handsome man and charming man, or was that... I'd say he must have been quite charming mm. because his letters are really funny, yeah. and I, I would strongly recommend them. And so, um, what what kind of things was he recommending to the German public to come to Ireland for? He said that he had never met people. Well, he he did describe the poverty, and, and basically every person who came to Ireland was remarking on the poverty that they encountered, but. He said that the people in Ireland were really amazing. And I mean, he, he did go on about the beautiful women um, of, of um, all levels, uh, all classes. He also said that he found people particularly educated, that you could meet someone um, kind of seemingly a peasant, seemingly very poor person, and he suddenly would start talking Latin and Greek. And I, I'm not quite sure whether that would have happened everywhere, but it clearly must have happened to him 
at some stage and he really extolled the beauty of Ireland and um, and there was of course at the time the kind of romanticism that this kind of the, the poor but um, well beautiful innocent uh, fantastic people and then the landscape of a wild and uh, romantic uh, kind with, with the sea with rocks and um, ruins so all that had a very romantic appeal and was the was this coming from a very romantic period in germany was there kind of great romantic poets and the um i'm trying to think it was music also what is a very time of romantic music and even art so where they did they find this notion of romantic ireland very appealing i think that would have come into it and there were quite a few further um travel writers who then also went on. But I think the combination of these romantic vistas, so to speak, plus the very positive attributes he gave the people and the friendliness um, had really an impact. And also he was absolutely fascinated by Irish fairy tales. And that would have been something that came into it as well and played into like the Brothers Grimm later translated Irish fairy tales into German. That was a runaway success. So from then on, Irish fairy tales became a staple of all German writing about Ireland. Okay. When did the Grimm, when were the Grimm uh, brothers uh, writing their fairy tales? Or at I least... think 1832. Oh, that, at that era. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Was that in Castle? Is that where they were from? That's where they... they yeah. Were, um, yes. There's a museum in, in mm-hmm. Castle uh, to the Grimpotters. I only know that because I went there for a documenta, but um, I was completely overwhelmed by the visual arts after a day or so. So I had to uh, take a break and go to the Grimm Museum instead. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, Castle has quite a few claims to fame. Like um, Beckett was there as well. His cousin lived there. Okay. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realise that. Yeah. Um, Beckett travelled a lot in Germany, didn't he? He did, yeah. but I think the interest, the first encounters came because his, his cousin lived there. Yeah, okay. Actually, his cousin, he fell in love with his cousin. His uncle and aunt had moved there. Um, and then he went there as well and, and came several times. And was that frowned upon a bit by, by his family? Or was it okay to marry your first cousin then? Well, he, he, he didn't marry and unfortunately she died very young i think in, 19, in 1933 so okay. that was an end but his first uh fair and middling women i think was kind of based on that or inspired by that friendship yeah yeah um some of his 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 early novels i think uh, may have been based on some of his experiences in germany um malone or or one of those some of those that, that stuff uh, hmm. mm, I don't, yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I'm not the academic, so I don't have to be an expert when I say these things. That's it's okay. Very unfair. Now. You're really yeah, unfair. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. yeah, it's okay for me to be wrong. <laughs> but um, yeah, well, this is the beauty yeah. as an academic. You realize you're wrong all the time. I just appreciate it a bit more. Yeah. Okay, that's good, Gisela. Well, you're not on on the on um, today. Uh, to be an academic expert in anything, you can uh, make a guess at things too. But uh, yeah, Castle. Oh yeah, the Grimm brothers writing, uh, writing down the Irish, translating the Irish fairy tales. That was I, I kind of always imagined that they had, um, they had captured all those great German fairy tales. But would, did they look to uh, other countries to write fairy tales too? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think they were interested, and and there was a kind of interest in in other cultures very yeah. strongly, and. Um, Ireland came into that, and that's also if if you look at um, Celtic scholars and the uh, 
Grammatica Celtica, Celtica Grammatica, I always get it wrong, mm -hmm. um, by Caspar Zeus. I mean, that was kind of the basis for later Celtic studies. Okay. So there was a huge interest in Germany in uh, different languages and um, well, Wilhelm von Humboldt was, was into that as well, of course. But there was really in the, the linguists of the time Okay. Played a huge role also for Celtic studies. Just go back a little bit. And the first one you mentioned, Grammatica Celtica, uh, who, what, what is that and who wrote that? Caspar Zeus. Yeah. Um, okay, I should check that. I happily <laughs> guess something like yeah. 1836. So this was a but, German writing down a, a, a grammar book about Celtic languages. Yes. Okay, yeah. And um, then that, was that because the, the, the Celts originally were associated with kind of Central Europe and there's kind of big Celtic scenes in Switzerland and places. Um, I, I always go back to uh, um, St. Killian. St. Killian mm. went to Würzburg, didn't he? And so he he was the Irish man who brought um, Christianity to the to the barbarian Germans, of course. Yep. And yeah. he and Tottenham and Kolonat were killed for it, um, unfortunately, of course. Okay. But, yeah. um, but they're still on the bridge in Würzburg. So. Yeah. They left a lasting legacy, and of course, the church and the Kiliani, um, the annual Kiliani fair is still there. Okay. Um, well, it's definitely to do with that because mm. the um, the monks who came over to the continent brought with them, of course, Bibles and religious texts, and sometimes the annotations were in Irish, and out of that a lot of the kind of rediscovery of the language came about and the establishment of a grammar. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't realize that part about that St. Killian. Was he, was he martyred um, because he was a Christian? Was that, is that the St. Killian story? I, I wouldn't go that far. I believe <laughs> yeah. that um, he told um, the, the ruler at the time that he shouldn't have married. He was a younger brother of the former count or I don't think it was a king and so he had married the widow of his brother and um, I think St. Kilian told him that that wasn't quite according to the gospel and the wife was not impressed by that information that she might be discarded and therefore arranged for him to be killed. Okay yeah and not just him some of his friends too. Mm. Yeah okay so um, maybe there's a there's a lesson in that. Um, don't meddle in other people's marriages. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, or don't tell powerful counts what to do. Uh, but all their wives. Or particularly their wives, yeah. I, yeah. I think he was away at the time. It wasn't his doing. Yeah. And then um, you mentioned as well uh, von Humboldt. So this was the great German, I don't know what you'd call him, uh, um, traveler, discoverer, philosopher, all sorts of things. Geographer. Did, did he um, also have well, an there interest? there are two of them. There's Wilhelm von Humboldt and there's Alexander von Humboldt. Okay, yeah. And Alexander von Humboldt was a younger brother and he went off. He was a traveler, a scientist. Mm -hmm. um, and Wilhelm von Humboldt was more the um, linguist, the educator and um, the example for and, and for university research in many ways. And he, his ideas of education and language are really, um, were, were really important. Okay. The university in Berlin, is, is that the von Humboldt? Mm -hmm. Is that called mm -hmm. after one of the brothers or both of the brothers? I would like to think both of them, but it might be just Wilhelm. Yeah, I think for today we'll have we'll give both of the brothers Berlin University. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But 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 he was also so Wilhelm then the linguist. He was also interested in in Ireland and in in Celtic studies. Um, not that much, okay. I think. Yeah. But um, one of the the first professor for Finno-Gristic languages, Ernst Levy, he saw Wilhelm von Humboldt as one of his great role models. And he had a really important role to play later on because he became the, f- the first professor for Finno-Gristic, so Hungarian, um, Finnish-Hungarian languages. And he came as a refugee to Ireland in the 1930s. And then his book about the structure of European languages was published in Dublin, I think in 1941, in German by the Royal Irish Academy. Okay. So, and he came to Ireland because he had friends who had studied Irish, Irish French, yeah. who went to Berlin to study Irish there because Berlin or Germany was really a center for studying Irish. Okay. So, Berlin was a center for studying Irish in the 19, in the Weimar days. Yeah. And yeah, in that period. And um, this man went to study uh, fin- Finno-Hungric, Finnish and Hungarian stuff. Finno-Gristic. Mm. Yeah. What was his name again? Ernst Levy. Ernst Levy. So Ernst was there in the 1930s and he was so taken with Irish studies. He came to Ireland to now. How did he manage to come to Ireland? What's, what's um, his link? He came to Ireland because he had friends. Um, in high places uh, among the Celtic scholars in Ireland who had studied there in the 1920s or before. And because he was Jewish, he needed to leave Germany. And he first went, he he spoke uh, numerous languages and, and could read even more. Um, He first went to the Basque country, but then when the Spanish civil war happened, he had to leave there and then he had the offer to come to Ireland and it was supported by the Society for the Protection for Science and Learning. And so he got a financial support to write a book and that was then this book that he wrote and um, then his whole family managed to come over as well. So perhaps that brings us neatly on to emigration in the 1930s from Germany to Ireland. Um, we often think that um, Ireland was not a very welcoming place for people trying to escape the National Socialists in the 1930s, but some of them did come. Mm. I think more than is generally known. And I believe that I wouldn't want to say, because it wouldn't be true, that Ireland was this wonderfully welcoming country in the 1930s. Um, in fairness, I think it should be pointed out that many people didn't know about Ireland. Ireland was not well known in Germany at the time. And at the same time, Ireland was fairly, I mean, if, if you think of Ireland at the time as a kind of teenager um, with substantial economic problems and with fairly high immigration rates, if you look at the number of people who left Ireland in the mid 1930s, that's as many people as left Germany. Um, obviously for different reasons. So you have fairly few people who wanted to come and um, a fairly um, difficult place to come to. It wasn't high on the list where people wanted to go. At the same time, any place would have been welcome for many people and Ireland did turn down many people. But 
we have, my colleague Horst Dickel and myself, have spent a lot of years uh, trying to find out who came, what did they do, where did they come from, who helped them. And we have got together more than 400 names of people who came and some very eminent and halfway well known and most of them not well known at all but I think many had a real impact and contributed and I think neither they nor the people who helped them should be forgotten. And just as a random example tell me about the ribbon factory and the Goebbels in in Longford. Um, The ribbon factory was set up by the Hirsch and um, Alois Goebel and his wife and his sister-in-law were brought over as technicians. And the ribbon factory in Longford gave employment to a lot of local people, trained a lot of people. It's actually an interesting example. I think it's the only example that at least I have heard of where someone was able to get over all the machinery. Of course, against, I mean, that, that I mean, leaving Nazi Germany was a, a, a terrible process where people had to leave all their money behind, all kinds of taxes had to be paid. But um, there was some leverage in this case, and there's actually a fantastic book about this, um, whereas it's not kind of the central story, but the book is, it, it, it does cover it because um, the parents of the author and the author himself were offered to go there. And that's George Clare, Last Waltz in Vienna. And unfortunately, in hindsight, and of course, we can always say with hindsight, we it, it should have been obvious, but it wasn't. And we, I think we need to remember that um, the father actually got a job offer in Paris and went there. And the mother had been in Ireland, but had been very unhappy here. And and she went with him. And then in the end, they were murdered in a concentration camp. But the son, George Clare, or um, Georg Klar, as he was until then uh, from Vienna, just like the, the family who set up the, the ribbon factory in Longford, um, he was a translator there. And then later on, I think in 41, he joined the British army and then went on. But the book is really great. And it, it describes it to some extent as well. Okay. Um, do you know uh, um, if any of the German academics who were coming here uh, would have studied Irish? Um, I know that some um, scholars went to the islands of the West, to the Blaskets and places. Was that part of any of the German studies? Not of the ones. Well, actually, there was one who was quite unusual because she was one who probably wanted to go to Ireland. Um, Kate Lisowski, Kate um, Müller-Lisowski. A fascinating story as well, because she and her husband um, lived in a kind of, well, commune is is a bit too strong, but a place north of Berlin called Eden, where they were into kind of ecological farming and apple trees and all of that. And the family took that on also in Ireland and produced apple juice and all of this in, in, in wonderful ways. But I think it was before that time, they weren't very successful here with it. And she was... In this commune called Eden, she set up um, like Irish folklore evenings and she edited some Irish uh, scriptures. She did her PhD, I think, with Julius Bocconi. She, she translated and worked with Douglas Hyde to some extent. So th- there was that. And then later on, she had the link 
and they went to Ireland. She taught Irish for a short time in Waterford at Newtown School, at the Quaker School, and her son went there. Um, actually, the Quakers were the group that did most for the refugees, and Newtown School took in, I think, a dozen students, and quite often of students who came on their own without their parents. We talked a lot about the Germans who came to Ireland, about that uh, German interest in Ireland during that Daniel O'Connell era. What about um, um, Irish going to Germany? Has um, has Germany ever featured as a place? Obviously, we, the Irish emigrated in, in, in their millions and tens of millions, but um, did any of them end up in Germany? Well, we start with Killian, okay, who, who did, um, <laughs> unhappily, but there were other monks, of course, as well, who went. Um, in, in the Middle Ages, um, someone who wrote about that is John Hennig, another refugee, um, who wrote about anything with Irish-German relations, uh, strongly uh, someone to, to read. Of course, Irish people did go to Germany occasionally, but not very often. It wouldn't have been on the same level as other English-speaking countries. You would have had far more people going to England, Australia, the US, um, Canada, than Germany. And uh, if you look at the 17th century with the wild geese, people would have gone more to Spain and to Austria, to other Catholic countries. But I think from the 1980s onwards, probably more. Mm-hmm. And I think it has grown. And at this stage, Berlin has become this really popular place and the, the go-to place for a lot of young people and artists, especially. And and has uh, Christy Moore's song about Stuttgart uh, ha- had a special appeal and, and made uh, Germany a very attractive place? Is there a, well, is there a Christy Moore pilgrimage to Stuttgart? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think... Maybe not only the song, but also the event of beating England in the um, Euro Cup was really 1988, of course. And I think a lot of Irish people, that what, what Christy Moore describes is, of course, this kind of joyful going over, leaving Ireland for the first time and then having really a great time and, and then crowned by this wonderful success. So um, I think that might well have been the time where Ireland, where, where Germany featured an island in the kind of popular imagination, in a larger, as a place to go to, as a holiday place, as a, as a nice place. Tell me a little bit then about the Centre for Irish-German Studies. Um, why, why is there a centre? Or how, how did it come about? Well, it came about in... 1996 or we, we started in 1997 and the we is my colleague Joachim Fischer and myself I had just started in UL in early 96 and then I was invited to Riga to open a Heinrich Böll exhibition and I was totally blown away by it I thought it was so fascinating the links between um, Latvia and Germany and, and, and art thrown into it and I, I said to Joachim I remember I think he, he was at the um, copy machine Joachim we have to do a conference this is this fascinating and on Irish-German relations because I mean I had done my PhD on, on German travel literature and Joachim worked about the Irish image in, um, of Germany so we had kind of very complementary interests. He said, yeah, well, I had thought about a center for a while. That would be nice. And I said, OK, let's do it. And um, clearly I was um, somewhat innocent, enthusiastic and didn't know what I was taking on. But um, we started with a conference in September 1997. And so this year we're going to have our 25th anniversary. And since then we had 18 international conferences, numerous colloquia, readings, um, organized exhibitions and had uh, concerts and 
uh, we have the with a lot of different projects going on a lot of um well there, there's a lot of research of course done a lot of colleagues now in ul mary i and in ireland germany the uk italy so it's it's really nice it's, it's wonderful coming together tell me about the donnerstag project um that's a project um, that was, in a way, the. Uh, it's a wonderful project, I think, about bringing together German and Irish poetry. And it's together with my lovely colleague, um, Dr. Sarka de Brun. And the idea came from Robert Henneberg from the German embassy, who is a very fluent Gilgore Irish speaker. And he thought Donnerstag is kind of done for poem and Donnerstag is a German word for Thursday. So to have a German poem on a Thursday, I thought that's great. And I, I was into videos um, and, and into that, at that time. And I thought, what about getting contemporary German poets together, letting them read their own poems and then retranslate it into Irish and maybe with students or maybe have some kind of... Um, prize-winning um, uh, translators. For example, Gabriel Rodenstock has been contributing as well. And so we have since September, on every first Thursday of the month, a contemporary poem. And we've had people like um, Jan Wagner and um, Kerstin Hensel and Ilma Rakusa and Robert Schindel, all supported by the German, Austrian and Swiss embassies and the DRD. And then on the third Thursday, every once we have a kind of classical poem like Goethe and Hilde Domine is coming up, and um, and will so you will you will you read a poem for us? Happily, um, there's one we did I think in November. It's one of my my favorite poems. Um, it's Theodor Storm, Die Stadt, and. If you want to hear the Irish version read beautifully by Sarkar, you need to go onto our website. And there you can see both um, myself and Sarkar in front of the Shannon and um, reading it out. So, um, Theodor Storm, Die Stadt. Am grauen Strand, am grauen Meer und seit ab liegt die Stadt. Der Nebel drückt die Dächer schwer und durch die Stille braust das Meer eintönig um die Stadt. Es rauscht kein Wald, es schlägt im Mai kein Vogel ohne Unterlass. Die Wandergans mit hartem Schrei nur fliegt in Herbstesnacht vorbei, am Strande weht das Gras. Doch hängt mein ganzes Herz an dir, du graue Stadt am Meer. Der Jugendzauber für und für gut lächelnd doch auf dir, auf dir Du graue Stadt am Meer. That was lovely. Thanks very much. Die graue Stadt am Meer. Is that about a place? Yeah, I think it's about Theodor Storm's home place called Husum on the north coast. Okay. Yeah. Clearly not blessed by good weather. But yeah, I was, it's, not, it's not exactly a, a tourist brochure uh, appeal. And the poor old geese, I was thinking that the geese is, is quite a kind of elegant, attractive creature, but not, not so much in this poem. Mm. Um, so this is available um, on the Donnerstag 
yeah. and you can see and and you read it in front of the Shannon. Um, yeah, with the Shannon. We, we thought that's the closest. Unfortunately, like yeah. Limerick has many advantages, but unfortunately, it's a little bit further away from the sea than other Irish cities. It's um, a bit of a downside. Yeah, but we have the Shannon, and we have the Shannon here going through UL, and I mean, we are blessed with I think the most beautiful campus in Ireland, and so we are making the most of it. Okay, good for a Limerick. So, um. On that collection of Dunnerstog, uh, Jan Wagner, who was also a guest earlier uh, in this series, Jan is also on that. And he takes on this challenge to walk about the Uckerberg region. I can't remember. Is that the, is that the right region? Somewhere north of Berlin. Uckermark. yeah. Uh, he, he, he walks about and he asks uh, people if they'd like to hear a poem read. He'll read them a poem. Very nice. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite a challenge because people are often a little bit intimidated by, by poetry. Or by poets walking up to them and saying, would you like some poetry? Well, I, I think it's an excellent idea. I, I think poetry is a wonderful um, introduction to a language, into a mindset, into culture. And uh, I came across someone in the, at the Cologne Christmas market two or three years ago where someone was sitting and saying, like, would you like to hear a poem? And I said, yes. And, and, um, and she started giving me different ones. And I thought it was really lovely. So I, I think uh, poetry is something that is um, enjoyable all the time but we thought with this project it's kind of it's it's a really it's a short thing it's kind of two three minutes and you get enjoyment from it and i loved that a number of the poets who contributed to this project gave us poems that hadn't been published yet so i think it's it's really wonderful and maybe next year and if we get some funding we could do it with irish poems and and contemporary poets um, and then translate that into german and bring Irish poetry more into Germany. How do you think that contrast works with uh, uh, new poetry, some that hasn't even been published, and live young poets and uh, and the great classics like um, Heine and Goethe and stuff? I think it works really well. Obviously, I'm biased. Um, but what I like about it is that you see the, the depth and the, the richness and also the stories behind it that... Um, and. and also, we, we work with colleagues from other Irish universities, and um, the one from Goethe was the Erlkönig that was um, presented by um, Owen McEvoy, and he did a wonderful version of it and, and read it in Irish. And it's just, it's so beautiful to hear something that you you are so used to, Wer reitet so spät durch Nacht und Wind, and then to hear it in Irish. And this it, is it a re- different appreciation. Yeah, Rena Shioga, is it? Um mm-hmm. Earl is Earl elf or fairy? Is that the, the yeah? Is that an old German word for or is it? Is Erlkönig. Er, yeah. yeah. But it's the fairy king anyway. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of a very gruesome poem, isn't it? It is. Mm. Yeah. For those of you who aren't familiar with the King of the Fairies, um, I'm not recommending it because it's very gruesome. <laughs> 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 no, no, it's a, it's a it's a kind of startling piece of poetry, isn't it? I, I thought it was a children's poem at first. No, um, I don't think it's okay, a children's yeah. poem as such, yeah. especially when the child dies. But um, yeah, you've just given away the end now, Gisela. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, go out and find that poem yourself. That's um, that's yeah. Uh, yeah. He owns reading of it. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. So um, when it comes to reading. Uh, when it comes to material, is it possible to get away to escape from your your academic job uh, and to read books, novels or things? Do you read for pleasure outside of work? Yes, 
but I find, um, and I, when I do read, I think I'm extremely lucky that this is in a way my job, that I can always claim, don't disturb me, I'm working. Um, but at the same time, and I, I really enjoy contemporary German literature as well. I think there's so much great stuff out there. And But I sometimes also feel I don't have enough time to read it. And I, I am feeling sometimes at conferences at a disadvantage because I have the feeling everyone else is reading so much. And I, I, I don't know, I, maybe my time management is not particularly good, but I always feel that I should be able to read much more. And I'm looking forward to some unspecified time when I can do that. So yes, I still read for pleasure, but I also read when I read things that I really enjoy and that are just that has just come out. Kind of okay, how can I introduce my students to it, and what would they particularly enjoy? And that's something that we like to do at the center. We have something called Limerick Literaturgespräche, where we really want to get writers to come to Limerick and read and, and discuss with the students. And I think this gives a completely different insight into the literature and, and the background and the motivation of the writers. So, and sometimes we we um, get that on video, not not always. Do you do you ever think that there's lots of German literature, possibly even German culture, German film that doesn't really reach Ireland? That that Irish people are not as familiar with German writers as they are with, obviously, UK or US writers. Oh, absolutely. Um, first of all, because the number of translations of German literature is still so small, and um, I, I don't have the numbers now, but it's really such. I mean, the the other way around, like. In, English literature gets translated much more often into German and also a lot of people read English, of course. So um, you'd have it in, in Irish literature in Germany, I think is quite popular and we have excellent translators as well, like Hans Christian Oeser, for example. But um, the other way around is far more difficult. But I, I do think that there are maybe growing interest like I mean the the last novels by Hugo Hamilton was on, on Josef Roth and Colm Tobin on Thomas Mann so um, there is an appreciation for German literature without any doubt. And when you have something like Hugo Hamilton or, or the um, the the one about Roth uh, does that 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 has a German topic or it has a German background so does that make things much more translatable and um, does Colm Tobin's other books are they translatable? Into German, you mean? Yeah, oh, obviously they are, they are translatable, but are they are they popular? If you said Colm Tobin in Germany, would anyone know who you were talking about? Um, I, well, he did go on a reading tour. Um, it was an interesting article by Derek Skelly about that because I mean the the topic he chose, Thomas Mann, is of course Nobel Prize winner for literature. Um, um, an interesting choice because Thomas Mann is kind of the writer of the 20th century for many, and therefore there is a lot invested. And there were some mixed reviews. And I think to some extent you can understand it because I really enjoyed the novel and I would strongly recommend it. Um, But probably for a lot of German readers, a number of things that had to be in there for an English-speaking audience who wouldn't be as familiar with Thomas Mann in comparison to the German audience would think, okay, but I know all that. Now, the the writing is still beautiful, but there there is not the same amount of 
new information or, or start like, um, okay. so, so you'd have to translate and edit and it would end up being a very slim volume quite a quite a <laughs> quite a short book yeah. for the german audience and, and you can't you can't yeah. really do that but um what i think is interesting that none of the reviews there's for example a fairly recent book by a german writer who also came to limerick and whose reading was fantastic about thomas mann in, in his later years and also about his um homosexual interest and that was hans pleschinski and his novel Königs Ali. and um that, for example, is, is never kind of taken in here and, and would have been an interesting comparison point. But anyway, could mm. still come or maybe one of us should write something about it. But Yeah, not not me. I won't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't I, think it'll. Uh, I always preferred Heinrich Mann. I always thought uh, uh, maybe there's something wrong with me that uh, Thomas seems to be very much the, um, the cult hero. And uh, Heinrich, I think, gets a little bit forgotten. I, I, I would agree with that. And I think... Um, I mean, there was obviously always this rivalry, but for example, Thomas Mann's, um, Heinrich Mann's Untertan, der Unter I mean, he was far more clear-sighted about political things and yeah. far more radical and mm -hmm. was far more unlucky in exile and, and was simply not as appreciated. And I mean, Thomas Mann was kind of the, the statement-like uh, author and Heinrich Mann was more the radical one. But he was really active in the exile pen as well. He really tried to get um, other writers, support other writers. Not that Thomas Mann didn't do that, mm -hmm. but I think he did it in a different different fashion, maybe, and yeah. had other interests closer at heart. Yeah, perhaps it was the more directly political writing of, of, mm -hmm. of Heinrich that I liked. I think they lived together in California as exiles. Could that be right? Was... Close enough. I think Thomas Mann's uh, circumstances were always much better than Heinrich Mann's. And um, yeah. I think they disapproved of, of his second wife. Um, OK, that, that sounds interesting. Why did they why did they disapprove of his second wife? There are actually several novels on that. There's not only okay. Contubines, there's also, I think, um, Eva Jurs wrote about that and, and focused actually more on Heinrich Mann. Can't think of the title right now. Um, well, she... She didn't, she seemed to be very ordinary, I think, from the perspective of the Thomas Manns um, and possibly more in the vulgar direction than what they were considering appropriate. But um, I think if you have that ongoing rivalry underneath for a long time and you you go into different spheres, it, personal communication can, can suffer and... Hmm. People just sometimes don't get on very well. Okay. Um, for no particular reason at all, but uh, to jump from the man's and that uh, era of German literature to the present day. And the German president visited um, Ireland just recently and he was at Orison Uchtheron with Michael D. Higgins. Um, mm -hmm. So um, what, what did you make of that visit? Well, my, I was delighted because he came to Limerick as well. And I think... Part of the reason was the Center for Irish German Studies and um, our we have a wonderful book collection. Um, we were we got a donation of the Gottschalk donation, the of the the largest private collection of German books about Ireland, I think four thousand volumes, and um, with some fantastic things like the first edition of James Joyce Ulysses and, and many other things. So they were looking at that the Irish and the German president together when they came to Limerick. So okay. I was very, very yeah. proud, of course. Can, um, can you tell me something that the German president said? 
well, the German president said something fantastic when he came uh, to Dublin and at the state dinner in Aras and Uchtrad, he said um, something that I would really like to quote. And I uh, have it in translation here. I could read it in German, but I think the translation will be more useful. We can, despite all the challenges that Brexit brings with it, also open new doors to each other in business and trade, in science and culture. And especially among young people, students, trainees, language learners, a new dynamic has already begun. And I would be happy if our governments gave this an additional impetus, for example, in education and culture. I think we should expand German-Irish exchange. We should use these very concrete new opportunities. It's about time. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to put my name down for one of those exchanges straight away. <laughs> yeah, no, I think there's so many things still yeah. to discover. There's so many research opportunities. There are so many things that we can, where we can bring people together from Ireland and Germany. And I think, well, the, the Herbino Goethe is a really lovely example of that. So I think anything like this that that in, increases knowledge, that that makes people curious about one another and want to learn more about one another is fantastic. And maybe then uh, to gradually begin to wrap up a bit, uh, we'll go back um, to the 1930s and from one president to another. But um, now that we're marking the centenary of so many things in Ireland, de Valera often gets a bit of a hard time. But uh, there was a bit of another side to de Valera and he was perhaps quite a more open man than we think of him and perhaps even a bit of a visionary. So tell me a little bit about um, de Valera and the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies. Well, the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies was de Valera's brainchild and he wanted to bring, well, two of his interests together and that was Irish and mathematics stroke physics. And so he wanted to follow the example of the Institute of Advanced Studies in the US where Albert Einstein was and bring, well, excellent people for for Celtic studies. He didn't need to bring that many people. He had very good people here, but for the physics side of it, he thought of bringing world renowned academics and he brought Erwin Schrödinger, the Nobel prize winner for physics 1933 to Ireland. And then later also Walter Heitler, um, who came in 1941, I believe, and also other scholars came. And he really was open not only to the academics and to, to bringing this Dublin Institute of, for Advanced Studies um, in, into life, which had a huge impact. And I think it was really one of the places where science could continue during the war. And where due to the networks, and I think academics always have international networks. That's the whole thing about academia, this kind of crossing borders. So that was a really good example. But he also supported actually kind of behind closed doors to some extent, because as we said earlier, there wasn't really a welcoming policy, but he did support the um, founding of an Irish Coordinating Committee for Refugees. And um, when the policy was very much against taking in refugees and actually also taking in um, emigrated Irish people again, who could not show that they had independent means and family to support them back in Ireland, they would not automatically get the right to come back. So, I mean, things like that, you have to take it all into account. So, um, especially after Hitler 
went to Austria, there was, of course, a huge increase of people who wanted to emigrate, needed to emigrate, had to emigrate. And the universities then started and said, like, we will take in, especially um, UCD, we will take in Austrian scholars and students. And the Department of Justice wanted to say, no, 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 we, we don't do that. That's against our policy. And then they heard who was at the meeting. And that was the chancellor at the time, who was Eamon de Valera. And so they couldn't really. And then there was a meeting. And I, um, in, in the book we, we published about it, um, an Irish sanctuary, there's a wonderful quote that I, I still remember about the, the civil servants who write to one another saying, like, we are unfortunately, like they don't say unfortunately, but they say we're very clear what the Taoiseach wants. And right now it would only cause unnecessary friction if we are go against it. So we have to adopt a more sympathetic attitude. And it's very hard in a way, but this is why there is a civil service and this is a challenge of the service. So he, he did support that, um, but he didn't come out publicly to say everyone is welcome. That's certainly not the case. Okay, yeah. Um... All right, then. Um, I, I think uh, that we, we'd probably finish on that. But um, I'm very glad that uh, that we did, we being Ireland, did get you instead of New Zealand. And, uh, that, <laughs> Thank you. That, that, you came, <laughs> that you came to live here. <laughs> and uh, but, um, but is there anything that you miss after your many years living in Ireland? Is there anything that you miss about Germany that you still find that you long for? Um, I... Okay, there are a few German things that I still, I, I love um, going to the supermarket um, where I can get fresh rolls at the weekend, um, things like that. So bread is a, a thing that I, that has changed. Obviously, you have far more, um, there's a greater selection here. But a Brennan, a Brennan sliced pan, sliced white sliced pan, that's not enough. <laughs> um, that's nice at its time, but uh, it's, it's nice to have more of the selection as well. Um, and no, I... I, I was never unhappy in Germany. It wasn't like, like maybe some people kind of, I have to come to Ireland and I, I hate it in Germany. I, I really, I, I enjoyed Germany as well. I, I enjoyed when I was in the States where I got my master's and I, I was very happy in New Zealand. So I, I think I take something from every place and um, I've been very lucky in many ways. Yeah. Bread. That seems to be the main thing that you miss about Germany. Bread. Yeah. Yeah. They do, there is great bread. I remember going to Germany and almost being intimidated in the bakery because there was so many breads that I, that I, love, I didn't. I love going to bakeries. Zwiebelbrot and zwei Zwiebelbrot and Vollkorn Zwiebelbrot and onion bread and many onion bread and onion corn bread and onions. And you're kind of going, oh, I just wanted bread. Just for this. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's so wonderful to have the selection and to kind of have different kinds of bread and, and fresh bread is something so beautiful. Oh, yeah. And, and ordering the bread by the 100 grams. So if you mm. wanted a little bit of that one, you could basically get two slices of that one and then a few slices of the other one. Yeah. yeah. Very and good. then have some cheese with it or some sausage or yeah. nice gems. And... Or some beer. Mm. Yeah. No, I'll have to. I'm looking forward to my next trip to Germany now so I can have some nice beer and some nice bread. Yeah, sounds yeah. like a very good combination. Okay, Gisela, thanks very much. It was lovely to chat to you today. Thank you very much, Kieran. And, and um, keep up the good work with uh, Albano Goethe. And um, I'm looking forward to the next episode. Good stuff. And I'm and looking forward to all your recommendations and all that yes, work. Yes, there, yeah. there'll be loads. Yeah. Uh, there's so much great stuff out there and so many wonderful books to read. Kieran, thank you.